Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Plays the Thing, in which we are discussing Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. Today, we will be discussing Act Four. I'm here with uh, Brian Phillips. Hello. And Heidi the White. Hello. Hey, guys. And I'm Matt the Bianco. <laughs> Matt the White. Welcome, Matt. Matt. And I'm the, the Italian White, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, that's enough small talk. So, Act Four. <laughs> is uh, basically, as I understand it, is has been added to the play because the play obviously ends in Act 3 with the speeches, yeah. and there's no reason to read Acts 4 and 5. And yet here we are reading Acts 4 and 5. So Turns out they're to... surprisingly good for those people who gave up at Act 3. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think Shakespeare Critters. got paid by the word. This is sort of <laughs> like, like a, Dickens? Yeah, an older <laughs> Dickens situation. <laughs> Just keep writing. That's right. I, I'll say I'll say coming into this episode that if you had asked me what Acts four and five were about or what their role was in the play, even though I've read this multiple times, I would have I would have it would have been difficult for me to give an answer that was that would make you want to read Acts four and five. It would be easier for me to say you don't have to read past Act three, <laughs> but having read Act four and preparing for this conversation, I am. Uh, changing my mind and finding that Act Four has a lot to say, especially because, as you all know, and I'm going to save this for a little bit later in the episode, mm-hmm. but I have found the definitive proof that Brutus is in fact the bad guy. Mm. So, okay, so all all the hundreds of years of conversation about this play has now been silenced, right, and resolved. Completely rendered useless. Because I've one so person who knows how to read finally came along and read the play. <clears throat> no wonder this is on the really? Close Reads podcast network. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, it's really close reading. I really uh, can't wait. No one else had point. ever seen it before. <laughs> no, listen, I, okay, we'll, we'll talk about the proof when we get there. Okay. All right. All right. All right. So, so Brian, our resident um, historian, do you pronounce <laughs> the H as a historian? Uh, <laughs> I'll allow it. I'll okay. Allow it. Yeah. Is uh, well, you, you you need to give us some context here. I mean, help us to uh, historicalize it because that's important. <laughs> I think. Um, I, I'll concede. Okay. Uh, well, Act Four. I I agree with you. Act Four does feel as if it's going to be a letdown. Uh, I don't think it really is, but we have to remember that Act Three records or tells us about one of the most significant events in the history of Western civilization. So it's hard for it not to be a little bit of a letdown in the action. Um, Hmm. But fair. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a, is a very um, tall order to continue keeping your attention after that because it's such a significant event. But um, the first line in scene one of act four you have um, Antony, Octavius, Lepidus, 
uh, gathered um, <coughs> gathered together. And Antony, his first line is, uh, "These many then shall die; their names are pricked." That is, they're they're written down; they're on the list. Um, the opposite of the Lamb's Book of Life. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely. True. That's good. Um, so they've made a hit list. These are all the people that we're going to kill. Um, and to me, as uh, I, I have had situations where teaching this play in a rhetoric class, for time's sake, we have had to stop after Act Three, you know, in a comparison of the speeches and so on, um, which is not ideal. But having had this conversation in the previous episodes about the importance of Sula and the importance of the historical background, right. mm-hmm. I just want to point out here that this is exactly what the senators, what the conspirators were trying to prevent. So now right. they have killed Caesar in the hopes of preventing another Sula, another tyrant, another dictator. And they have ensured for themselves a far worse dictator. Well, and they've become that, right? In some, in well, some sense here. Yeah, they have. And because they underestimated Mark Antony, as we discussed right. in the last episode, um, they now have inherited a a tyrant right who is going to be far worse than caesar was at least at the time right, right. We, don't, we don't really know what caesar would have become had he not been assassinated but here's mark antony literally describing his hit list which is precisely what sulla had done uh with all of his political and personal enemies on that hit list Mm-hmm. And he has become a completely different person. So now we have Mark Antony in power. Uh, he has his uh, growing um, army and support. And now they they have brought upon themselves the very thing they were trying to prevent. It's right. kind of like it's like the French Revolution, right? We don't yeah. want to be told what to do, so we're going to get rid of the king, and then they end up with the Emperor Napoleon. I thought of that last week when you were telling us the story of Sula, this very scene that this is, a, you know, they have created the monster that they were trying to destroy. Right. And mm-hmm. especially uh, because this scene is right after the, the mobs murder of, is it Senna? <coughs> I'm so, a lot of listeners know right. I'm so bad at pronouncing because I'm a reader, right? I always tell my kids, never make fun of people who pronounce things wrong because it means right. they're readers. Like yeah. I'm bad at pronouncing. So is it Sina or is it Sign? Is it Sina? It's Sina. It's Sina. Okay. No, so, you're talking about poet. Brandon's comment. Yes, and then it made me feel insecure. He, so no, thanks, he was Brandon. He was joking. I know, what a All guy. Right. I know, <laughs> he's the best. <laughs> uh, anyway, so what happens in this previous scene um, we didn't discuss it too much because this is a scene that needs some context. It's, I mean, the play has a chiastic structure, which we'll talk about today because now we're seeing the second half of the chiasm. Um, but in this this previous scene, it's Act Three, the last scene. Is it Scene Three? Yes, when the when the mob murders Cinna, and so uh, with that scene juxtaposed with the murder of Caesar, we already see kind of a downward spiral immediately. Right. Uh, from the murder of Caesar, something is happening that the conspirators didn't count on, that they were actually trying to eradicate in their uh, mis- misguided, or even if it was a virtuous act, it didn't result in virtue, right? And so what we see then is that the mob becomes the mirror of the tr- of the true nature of the conspirators. Um, they go out and murder a poet who has... Uh, an idealistic poet, they mistaken for somebody else, which you could make the case that Shakespeare is saying that that's what the conspirators did, right? They, they murdered somebody um, instead of, you know, their highfalutin ideals of making him some kind of sacrifice to the gods. And um, right. it's actually just a slaughter of the innocent. So but, whether I mean, or not, at, at least be- because it was preemptive, good. right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they, I, I mean, Bruce says mm-hmm. that he, he, he will become a tyrant, he will right. because of his ambition, but he hasn't actually done anything yet. Mm-hmm. So, that, I mean, from that perspective alone, it's it's a preemptive strike. It's you're it's murdering somebody who's still innocent, right? And then and then the same thing with Cinna, right? And and yet with Cinna, there's not the poet rather. There's not even 
there's not even any evidence that he's going to do anything in the future, except for the fact that he shares the name. Right. One of the conspirators. right. Which of course that's significant. And then the very next scene is a hit list yeah. from those who are taking power. Right. And not only right. a hit list, but a hit list in, in which they're trading the names of family members, brothers right. and nephews immediately right off the bat. So for that's and that is the very these are the very first words of Antony after his stirring, moving speech to the uh, to the people that makes them feel as though, you know, um, they they're about to do some kind of good in putting Antony I guess on the throne is the wrong term because they don't want a king, but making him, giving him power. Of course, we see right away Antony's true colors. He's making hit list. There are brothers and nephews on it. And then, and then he makes a comment about trying to find some kind of legal loophole in Caesar's will to take yeah. more of his money for himself instead of giving it to the beneficiaries of the will, which is the, the, the citizens of Rome. If he, if he, told the truth about the will during his speech exactly exactly because yeah. he says that the will is at caesar's house right but he told the mob that he had the will in his hand right right hand, right and was supposedly reading it to them another another indication of his true colors though, around line 40 in act four scene one around line 40 they're talking about uh, so as the scene opens you've got antony octavius and lepidus there and then lepidus leaves around line 11 and then Antony's talking about him after he leaves. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how he's basically using him. And he's he's really yeah. good for nothing but as a tool in their plans. And even says, he tells Octavius, do not talk of him but as property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, right. as a property. Yeah. That reminds me, I, I wrote a little note in my margin here because that reminds me of the conversation between Cassius and Brutus mm-hmm. when, they're, when they're trying to figure out what to do with Mark Antony. And right. Brutus is like, think of him as nothing more than just the hand yep. of a now headless body yep. or what right. will be a headless body. And, and now, and, and, and he's wrong, of course. Um, yeah. But Mark Antony is, is, has, has the exact, like, like it's, it's interesting because when Brutus says that he's dehumanizing Antony. Yes. But he's doing it in a way to say that saves Antony's life. Mm-hmm. Here, here, Antony is dehumanizing uh, Lepidus, Lepidus in a way that is basically just going to—I I, mean—eliminate him from from mm-hmm. the triumvirate or whatever, right? Right, right, right. That's but true. but it brings up a a point that this play that there there are a lot of big questions, but one of the big themes or ideas that w- that we keep coming back to is. Um, or what we keep seeing is people being wrongly estimated. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Right. right. Whether yes. underestimated, overestimated, um, you have the worst of motives assumed. You have the best of motives assumed, and it seems like everyone is always wrong. Yeah. Which yeah. is a very valuable life lesson, isn't it? Right. <laughs> are we, overruled by the others. Caesar yeah. was absolutely right about Cassius, right? Cassius, yeah, Jan, Cassius was. Has lean and hungry. Look, I wish you were fatter. Right. That mm-hmm. it's. He is he's right in his estimation. Uh, the the other conspirators were right in their estimation of Antony, but they're overruled by those who say they're doing the best for Rome, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? But really, just grasping for their own power. Don't right. forget, he also said he wished he was balder. I think that's important for for <laughs> no. Brian. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but right, so you so people throughout the play assume the best of themselves, assume the worst of others. Or estimate people's worth wrongly, mm-hmm. um, and that's something that if you if going back to I think the first question we asked in the first episode was why do people see this play as just a staple? You know, one that one of Shakespeare's plays that you really just have to read and you have to study, and I think that's yet another reason is that there right. are so many valuable lessons there that we, <laughs> we, we all have this tendency because there's no sex in it. Didn't we decide that? Well, that's, it's kind of a a fringe, oh. benefit, <laughs> fringe benefit. benefit of the <laughs> of the play. Did you guys? Um. Yeah. What? It, okay, never mind. <laughs> so also not what I meant. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so all the way back in Act One, Scene Two, um, we find this. We get news from Casca that 
Marlis and Flavius, remember those guys? Mm -hmm. I do, yeah. That they have been put to silence Mm -hmm. for pulling scarves off of Caesar's images. So they're defiling statues of Caesar, which therefore is a defilement of Caesar himself. And of Rome, yeah. And of Rome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and of Rome. Good point. So I read this, I read this for the first time as an adult, I think, back in 2012 or so with with the apprenticeship with Andrew Mm -hmm. and the apprenticeship. And I have a note from that reading in the margin that says next to next to are put to silence. I have that underlined. And then next to that I wrote, I wrote the demise of rhetoric. Hmm. And, um, so, so what's interesting, like you mentioned, Brian, reading this play in rhetoric classes Mm -hmm. and, and then kind of only end up, you end up stopping at, at three because act three is really the, the, the last examples of, of, of really good rhetoric. I mean, worthy of study, right? Yeah. The, the obvious kind of test cases. Yeah. So what, what I'm noticing in four is what appears to be a complete lack of rhetoric. Right. There's no, I mean, none of the Mm -hmm. conversations consist of any rhetoric. It's just them. It's just them kind of bickering back and forth. Um, And so, so it's almost like what you see is through the, through the death of Caesar is, is Rome is a place of rhetoric, but then, and and, and Mm -hmm. it's foreshadowed here with the, with the putting to silence of Marlis and Flavius that rhetoric is going going to go away or is in the process of going away. Then huh. with Caesar, with Caesar's death, perhaps rhetoric goes away, hmm. especially if you think of, of Antony's speech is as actually being more sophistic. Right. And yeah. not rhetoric, right? That, that, that he's like, he's oh, corrupted rhetoric and destroyed it for ultimate, finally. Right. And then everything that proceeds from then on is just, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I want to look at act five with this obviously next time, but right. in act four, you don't see, or, or do you, do you see rhetoric in act four? Well, no. to add to what you're saying and to maybe put a different slant on it and to agree with you, the, um, what I think we're seeing in act four, because before this, the rhetoric you could, some have argued, and I think you could argue that the rhetoric has been t- to hide, not to reveal. Um, in the first part, in the first act, yes, three acts. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Uh, to persuade to an action that nobody is as sure of as they are claiming to be. Right. Um, or, and it's especially particular, I would say in the case of Mark Antony, who's the best at rhetoric in this play, uh, he is entirely hiding himself, but that's revealed in act four. And so along with what you're saying, you could also look at it with an additional level of things that have been hidden by rhetoric in act four become revealed and come into the light. That the nature of the precarious nature of the relationship between Brutus and Cassius Mm -hmm. that we'll see in scene two. Um, Here, the true nature of Antony and of Octavius, who also participates who i mean he's the pox romana is octavius coming up right? right but but he is here a man grasping for power um to the point of assassinating all his enemies just like all the tyrants who have come before him um and he just happens to be the best at it right right now it looks like antony's going to win but of course we all know that he doesn't triumph it's octavius what? so i know right spoiler alert <laughs> so um and that continues to happen. We find out that Portia, later in scene two, we find out some things that have secret about Portia that come into the light in multiple ways. And then Brutus, you're not really sure uh, his reaction to it. So all these things that have been hidden come into the light in this play, instead of being covered over by rhetoric, are now being revealed like by the naked soul, like the true man underneath. Mm. That. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Brian. Well, I was, I was just going to say that I think part of this too is that we have this intersection of, well, uh, okay. So as you said, the rhetoric previously used was intended to hide or persuade about certain actions. Mm -hmm. Right. But now we've reached a point to where the rhetoric, the rhetoric is done and now it's just action. Mm -hmm. 
And to use, I, I don't know if it'd be considered a cliche or if it's old enough to be considered an adage, but actions mm-hmm. speak louder than words, right? Mm-hmm. Now they're past the the point of rhetoric. Right. Because everyone can see there are two sides and there's a lot of bloodshed. And I, I can't help but wonder if there's something more significant here that it would be very difficult to put our fingers on, but it, it's a, a thought that I want to throw out here. I wonder if once, is there some kind of cultural or um, philosophical statement being made here where when a, when a people reach a point of violence, they're past the point of Huh. Rhetoric. Oh, they're rhetoric. past the point of persuasion, mm-hmm. right? The, they're not persuading with words anymore. It's just bloodshed. Right. So there, there is no reason anymore. There's no logic anymore. It's just sides. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just bloodshed. I, right. So, so my favorite book of all time, when I've read it more recently than the Odyssey, mm-hmm. is the Iliad. Um, <laughs> and. I was thinking about the Iliad recently, like in the last couple of months, as as a text in which Homer, where where I think the case can be made. Uh, I've, Andrew and I, Andrew's talked about this. There's there's a there's a book on it we found recently that Homer is kind of the beginning of like a formalized rhetoric, hmm. and 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 specifically the Iliad. Um, and so you what you have is a kind of textbook on rhetoric, right? So in thinking about that with Andrew, I've I've also I've also wondered if Homer is showing us the both the power of rhetoric and its weaknesses. Right. Right. Because you have all of these great rhetorical speeches in the Iliad, but very few of them actually work. Very few of them are actually successful, right? And 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 now, you know, based on what you guys are saying, I'm wondering if the same thing is kind of happening here with with Shakespeare is Shakespeare giving us a similar lesson that like you can see the power of rhetoric in some of the speeches, right? Anthony's especially, um, and Brutus's initially, right? The two orations, the funeral orations, but you also see the failure of it to actually, to actually accomplish peace, right? To actually bring about, Mm -hmm. uh, peace or, or even as you're pointing out, Heidi, to bring out, truth to reveal the nakedness of the soul. I completely agree with you. I've thought of the Iliad many times in this play with, uh, in rereading it that, um, because the Iliad is a, it's an epic, a poem about, about war and power and force, right? What has more force and is it, is it words and persuasion and rhetoric or is it arms Right. And that is, I think, mm. a huge question also of this play. And then the uh, question the pen is mightier than the sword. Right. And is that really true? Because yeah. as you pointed out, there's a lot of failed rhetoric in the Iliad. And yet, who's the true audience of the Iliad? When is it, uh, is it really Achilles when the three men go to persuade him yeah. or is it the reader? Right. Yeah. And so um, that huh. is. So is it failed rhetoric or is it just that the story also has to contain that in order to persuade the reader through both the juxtaposition of those two things, right? And so I think that there's a lot of that here in this play too. And I think Brian's point is so good that we're past the point of needing to persuade to action. Now everyone's just living with it. The people who give up at act in, in act three in this play are missing, I think, everything about this play because you must see the results of the action and the rhetoric in these final two scenes in order to really get to the humanity and the pathos of this play. Let me, let me add one more thing about uh, on the rhetoric question. Um, In Plato's Gorgias, there's Mm -hmm. a, is the, there's the dialogue about if you're trying to answer the question, what is rhetoric? Right. And in that dialogue also comes up the question, what is justice? Hmm. And, and, and the, the definition you get for rhetoric is basically, I mean, what it boils down to is the ability to persuade somebody to do what you want them to do <clears throat> or, or not do what you don't want them to do. Right. The definition that comes out, the you know, when you boil it down of justice is the ability to make somebody do what you want them to do mm-hmm. or to keep them from doing what you don't want them to do. And what, and what Socrates ends up fighting against 
with Gorgias and his and his comrades there is basically a definition of rhetoric and a definition of justice that are the same thing. They are the ability to conquer. Right. Force. Yes. You, yeah. Somebody else, right? Either through your words or through physical violence. Um, and so he rejects rhetoric understood in that way. Mm, so Socrates cool. does, right? Yeah. Um, and now we're seeing, we're seeing it here. And I, I think you guys are make those are excellent points, right? And, and, and the way you put it, Brian, that, that we're at a point now where rhetoric, where rhetoric fails us. Uh, well, Okay, Persuasion. One, more, one more analogy, right? The garden. Yeah. Right. Rhetoric. If you if you take Eve as using rhetoric against the serpent, it fails. And and and, and at some point we need to recognize the weakness of rhetoric. And like like Adam should have taken the serpent right. and flung him out of the garden, right. not not had a dialogue. Yeah. Well, and that's yeah. the message of Paralandra, right? Is you yeah, have yeah, to right. Go, like you have to go defeat evil with your bare hands. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and on on to put another twist, and you could we could argue for a while about who is the serpent in <laughs> Julius Caesar, right? But yeah, um, uh, Brutus. Huh? <laughs> oh, I have, and I have proof. Of you that. haven't gotten there yet, <laughs> um, but. There, there was a certain point where the serpent's rhetoric was was leading to a particular action, and once the action was done, we don't hear of him saying anything else. Huh. Right? He hit the whole point of his rhetoric was to lead to to get Eve to do what he wanted her to do. Yeah. And once she did it, he doesn't care anymore. Right. Yeah. It's mission accomplished. Yeah. Right. As long as long as the huh. bloodshed has come. That's all I wanted, right? Um, and I think we see the same. So, yeah, bringing up the the garden is a perfect example of this. Um, but but another point as to why I think Acts four and five are so Acts four and five are important is that we've kind of conditioned ourselves largely through television movies. I think um, to to be able to think of that initial action as being the end, mm. right? So. You watch some movie where someone is determined to get vengeance or they're, you know, whatever it is. Um, but then you never really see the consequences of those actions. Yeah. Right. And now what Shakespeare is doing for us is we're saying Julius Caesar is assassinated in act three, which feels like it should be the conclusion. Mm-hmm. That's what everything was building to. Right? right. But Shakespeare forces us now in acts five, four and five to see the consequences of all of that rhetoric mm-hmm. and the consequences of all the bloodshed. Yeah. And so now we see what happens when you take such action. Mm. Um, and I can't help but wonder if we've sort of set ourselves up for trouble by neglecting acts four and five, um, you know, in classroom settings or personal reading or whatever. Right, not we, us. Right. No. I mean, we're obviously <laughs> we're, we're right, doing act but... four right now. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but all those people who stopped right. listening to this podcast before this show. Oh yeah. Shame on you. You'll never well, hear it, keep, but shame on keep, you. Yeah. We keep comparing these to the, this to the epics, which I think is because we're classicists and also because it, it fits. Right. So thinking about the Iliad again, my students ask me all the time, why does the Iliad end where it ends? Right. You guys hear that all the time too. Right. Why doesn't, why, why don't we find out what happens with the war? Hmm. Right, but mm. it's not the point. Right, the true conclusion of the Iliad is the human connection at the at, in Book Twenty Four between Achilles and Priam. That's the true. That's the masterful resolution of the rage, seeing muse of the rage of Achilles. Right. So the and here we have a kind of a very similar thing. If you just stop with act three, if you just stop with let's analyze these speeches from a rhetorical style and let's look at the historical context and let's talk about whether or not they should or shouldn't have killed Caesar. And this is all about the death of Caesar. You're missing this, um, this grand humanist exploration of this bridge between history and tragedy, right? Mm -hmm. That there is a consequence, as you pointed out, Brian, there 
that that actions uh, produce consequences in the social realm, which we see, and also in the soul of a man who performs that action. I remember Brian, not it wasn't Brian, it was you, Matt, who told me that um, to become an Orthodox priest, you can't ever have taken a life, even if it was justified. Right. right. If you are a soldier in war, if you are defending your family, because there's an existential impact of such a thing mm-hmm. upon the soul of a human. And I think we see that in 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 this play just as much as we see the public uh, consequences for Rome and for these armies and the quest for power. Yeah. So, you know, the the. um there's a line that I heard from the Anglican uh, Bishop N.T. Wright mm-hmm. um, once that, 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 that is apropos here. Um, I, I like that word. Anyway, mm-hmm. the, um, he says something like, something like God prefers order to chaos so much so that he prefers this is, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like this. Like he, he so prefers order to chaos that he prefers corrupt order to chaos. Huh. Anarchy. Like bad order is better than no order. Interesting. In, for, to God. And, and to the extent that, that mm. Bishop Wright is correct, right? That's kind of what we're seeing here. Shakespeare That's acting out for us, right? The exploration is, of that. Yeah. Is, huh. Yeah. Like you have this perceived bad order in Caesar, but the death of Caesar brings about a chaos that's far worse than the bad order they originally had. And the same thing with Sula, right? I mean, they're, they're create, like right. you were saying, Brian, they're right. creating the Sula yeah. that, 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 that shows the NT right to be, See it be true. It'd be yeah, and that's that's the thing that the conspirators miss is that Sula rose because of chaos. Hmm. He was able to seize power because of political cultural chaos in Rome. Um, chaos that the senators, the conspirators here, caused again, which led hmm. again to hmm. a dictator and a very violent one. Um, and so I think the. The big question that I've mentioned in previous episodes of the play is should the conspirators kill Caesar? Um, But you have to, for us to be able to answer that question, you have to get to Acts 4 and 5. Yes. In Mm -hmm. order to really answer it because it's, you know, you learn from actions and their consequences. Yes. This was not done in a vacuum. Something actually happened afterwards. Um, and we begin to see that. So, um, but in scene one, we get a glimpse into who Antony really is, to who Octavius yeah. is. And I will say it, it feels, at least to me in scene one, like Octavius, you see, is kind of trying to temper Antony a little bit. Yes, that's not, true with Lepidus specifically, enough, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but then there's a big contrast when we get into scenes two and three between Antony and o- Octavius. And Brutus and Cassius. Right. So we need to talk about that, don't we? I don't I'm glad you said that because I'm not sure <clears throat> I'm not sure that I would have seen Octavius as being a temper for I, I think when I originally read it or most recently read it, I saw Octavius as like, here's the rope, go hang yourself. Oh. Hmm. But well, maybe. But maybe when you said right. that, I glanced quickly at my text and some of the highlights and in line thirty or 3132 in, in my edition, Octavius says, you may do your will, but he's a tried and valiant soldier. Right. And there seems to be like, like he's not, he's not trying to control Antony. Anthony's going to, he's going to let Anthony be who he is, but he does offer a reason, an argument to try to temper Antony. Yeah. So I can see that. Hmm. And, and I, I could be reading his later behavior back into this too. Maybe maybe it's one of those times when I need to turn off the history teacher part. Um, <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, he's an interesting... I, I, I'm a big fan of multiple perspectives on Octavius as you go through these two plays, especially in Antony and Cleopatra. But 
that's down the yeah. road and yeah. plays the thing. So, hmm. so scene two, we, I, I mentioned earlier just briefly that this play has, as most Shakespeare plays do, has a chiastic structure. So there's some kind of turning point in the middle. Um, if you're to mentally map it in your mind, you look at it like a wave. Right, so a wave comes up on the shore, it peaks, and then it goes back. And so um, there's parallel scenes throughout this play. And again, a lot most Shakespearean, most most of Shakespeare's plays has have elements of this chiastic structure, and this one's almost perfectly chiastic. Hmm. Um, but and then so in Act Two, Scene Two, if you remember, that's the scene at night um, in Brutus's garden. Mm-hmm. When the sp- conspirators come and try to persuade him, he gives in to their persuasion, even though he has insomnia and he's questioning himself. And then Portia comes and tries to change his mind. So that's the building action of Act 2, Scene 2. Here we have Act 4, Scene 2. Yeah. And you have, at night, in a battleground, after Caesar's dead, Cassius yeah. comes and they have a big fight. So instead of persuasion we have and connection, you have disconnection and conflict. And then we find out that Portia is dead. She has killed herself by eating fire, which, by the way, sounds awful. Can you, what? Who does that? So she's eaten burned embers and burned herself from the inside out because uh, as an act of defiance, I'm sure we'll talk about suicide, which Matt, here's your cue to make fun of me for bringing up suicide again. Um, so that's... Ha ha ha, silly girl. That got really, that got really <laughs> dark remember. really quick. Um, so uh, those, are, those would be interesting things to compare and contrast in the classroom. Um, if you're teaching this play, because this scene's really important. It's really long, just like act two, scene two is really long. And a lot of things are happening. Also, Brutus has insomnia again, and Lucius plays a major role. So these two scenes are mirrors of each other. Do you mean act four, scene three is a mirror to scene to act two, scene two? Um, Cause scene two, act four, scene two is pretty short. But scene three is super long, and that's where all the Porsche stuff comes up. And you have um, his his servant. Is that what you have, Brian? Yes. Do you? Mine is all Act Two. That's all, really all scene funny. Two? I'm sorry. Excuse oh. me. All scene two. Yeah. You only have two scenes in Act Four. Yep. That is incorrect. Whoa. So yeah, I have. I, well, I have this. This is, is she, this is the Norton. Oh, she's got the Norton, Norton Shakespeare based on the Oxford edition. So is I'm that sure the green it's just book a, uh, Lewis yeah. writes about in the abolition. Yeah. Of yeah so <laughs> I'm sure that it's a quarto folio issue here. Mm. So it's a textual yeah, criticism yeah. issue. Um, so if for our listeners, um, I have it all as one big long scene and these guys have it divided. So ours divide, mine switches to scene three when when it says all but Brutus and, Brutus and Cassius exit. So when they go into the tent to talk privately. Okay. That's when it switches to scene three. Right. That's really interesting. I've Wait. never, I've never noticed that before. Presumably Wait. because the act, the scene changes. Yeah. They yeah. go from outside to inside. Right. 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 They're about to have their big argument. And depending on yeah. how you stage it. Mm-hmm. Um, but okay. So. Okay. So, and okay. So it still fits with what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because uh, when I was reading scene three, I kept seeing parallels to mm-hmm. the, to the the courtyard scene or garden scene, but I would, I had not having mapped out the the chiasm. I didn't necessarily think of it as being chiastic. I just saw the, I just saw parallels. Right. right, like he has insomnia, but his servant Lucius has the exact opposite of that. Yeah. He has the falling like he just can't not fall asleep. Right, he can't right. Even play the instrument without falling asleep. I, as just one one parallel that I right, which goes back to the lost innocence of Brutus being embodied in Lucius um, in some way. There's also uh, we, some taper and darkness stuff here that you... It's true, dark I, and light. I, I noted because of you. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. Well, that's... Yeah, this is an, a really interesting scene. Um, in teaching this play, I do tend to focus on those two scenes more than even scene three. Um, I'm sorry, act three, these two acts. I'm really sorry about getting seen and act mixed up. Let me say that again. When I'm teaching this, I focus on Act 2 and Act 4 even more than Act 3 because I think these those two scenes really get into the heart of the characters and the humanity of the play and the, and the big question, philosophical and existential and political questions. They're also the two acts that prove Brutus is the bad guy, but... 
Okay. So can you talk about that now? Is that with the time? Fine. But I feel like I might have overhyped it. And now we, we <laughs> it's going to be have, a big letdown to uh, everyone. We don't have much, much time left. <laughs> so this better be the time. Wow. Us. The day. Wow. Wow. Okay. All right. You ready? So it's act four, scene three, scene two in your weird book. Okay. Um, so, My anthology. It's like standard. Yeah, also known as a weird book. <laughs> um, what do they know? So, you know, you have, do you have that, that parallel or oh, that weird scene too, where they finish their conversation and there's a poet that's trying to talk to them. Yeah. yeah can uh-huh. you, can you set the stage for us a little bit? Cause we haven't really given kind of a quick, Okay, okay. What's actually happening here? Okay, so actually, well, well, Heidi kind of did, but so in starting in scene two, Cassius and Brutus are, it comes out that there's a disagreement between them, um, that they're fighting. And Brutus is talking to Lucilius, who says, Yeah, Cassius has been cold toward me. Um, And then and then, or he's been treating me differently. And Brutus says, yeah, he's, that's his friendship turning cool. So then, then he and Cassius have their, their confrontation. And it's really bizarre, actually. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of childish. Like, yes, it's like when I said earlier that it's the end of rhetoric, the demise of rhetoric <laughs> has happened. This is kind of what I'm thinking. Right. So like in scene three, so it's line, uh, 30, starting with line 30 or so in mine, yeah. Cassius says to Brutus, Brutus, bait not me. I'll not endure it. You forget yourself to hedge me in. I am a soldier. I, older in practice, abler than yourself to make conditions. And then Brutus says, you are not. Yes, I am. You are not. Urge me no more. <laughs> Away, slight man. Is it possible? Hear me for I will speak. And there's this kind of like weird... A, some middle school kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> This then, is the scene that makes me think they on might the actually be brothers, like real brothers. Yeah, right, right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Then, like, not just a little bit later, uh, 30 lines later, Cassius says, you wrong me every way. You wrong me, Brutus. I said an elder soldier, not a better. Did I say better? And Brutus like, if you did, I don't care. Or I care not. Sorry, I'll keep the Shakespearean language. Um, then... He says, when Caesar lived, he durst not thus have moved me. You durst not have so tempted him. I durst not. No, durst not tempt him for your life. You durst not. And and there's like, again, the back and forth. Yes, no, yes, no. Then again, he says in 30 more lines later, um, this is where you find out why Brutus is really angry with Cassius. Not because Cassius was swindling people like he says but because i did send to you for certain sums of gold Mm -hmm. which you denied me that's line 78 and 79 then cassius says i denied you not you did i did not i did not you love me not i do not like your faults i love that i do not like your faults (laughs) a friendly i could never see such faults yeah there's this like childish back and forth and if you loved me you wouldn't bring it up Right, yeah. right, right. Exactly. Then there's this almost kind of like childish reconciliation, yeah, childlike yeah. reconciliation, where he says, um, you know, Brutus says, do what you will, dishonor shall be humor. And then Cassius says, hath Cassius lived to be but mirth and laughter to his Brutus? Brutus, when I spoke that, I was ill tempered too. Cassius, do you confess so much? Give me your hand. Brutus and my heart too. Cassius, oh Brutus, Brutus, what's the matter? Cassius, have not you love enough to bear with me? And there's this very like childlike, I don't mean childish, but childlike forgiveness and reconciliation and repentance. It's actually kind of kind of touching. It is. Then then that then that whole tent scene ends, and this poet comes along. It's so weird. It's It's so weird. And then Brutus is just like get the heck out of here. And, um, and I think Cassius is kind of like, wait, 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 what's this all about? What's let's listen. Let's hear him out. And Brutus is like, no, let's get rid of him. And it, and it kind of reminds me of the scene with the seer where they're, where they're the soothsayer, the soothsayer. Yeah. They're kind of dismissive of him. Right. Right. Like Caesar and Anthony or whatever. They're just kind of like, no, 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 get the heck out of here. We're not going to listen to you. What is this dreamer talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, so, what do you guys think is the significance of the poet coming in? Because that that's one that bugged me. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it I can fit. speculate, but I, I don't know. I, do I you, don't know. Do you guys know of it? Except it's parallel to the soothsayer. I don't know. <coughs> well, I think it's parallel to what's his name, Artemidorus. Oh, the lover. Yeah. yeah, I think that's it. I think it's a chiastic issue that ties this scene to that brief scene when Artemidorus makes the same claim and is equally ignored to Caesar. Right, he's telling Caesar what Caesar already knows, and Caesar refuses to hear him. And then, of course, he dies. Here we have that mm-hmm. kind of the same kind of idea of of an omen that, uh, or or a, um, uh, an admonition that is unnecessary or just doesn't sit fit right on the character at the uh, time. It's useless or be, impotent because of its chiastic par- uh, parallel. Mm-hmm. Are we to? kind of assume perhaps that the poet was going to give some sort of wisdom comparable to Artemidorus's? Maybe. Yeah. That there's still, I mean, it's because of this conflict between them that they die. Right. Like that's hmm. so. Yeah. Well, you can at least I've heard that case made. I don't know yeah. if that fits all the way. To be honest, I let, think they were going to die anyway. But go ahead, Brian. What is your let, what let are me your throw thoughts? only because history <laughs> made sure of it. But. Right, I, I want to throw in a um, a thought here that at least an observation that that maybe could lead to a a, a reason or understanding here of the poet. <clears throat> uh, well, of the significance of the poet. Um, I think at this point, we've got Cassius and Brutus. They know that things are not going well, right? They're having to respond to the actions of Octavius and Antony. Um, The tide of public approval has turned against them. It is very briefly with them, right? A matter of moments between Brutus's speech and Antony's speech. Um, So, And now they have this conflict with each other. So throughout the play, we've seen... um, Omens rejected, dreams rejected, the soothsayer rejected, yeah. Artemidorus rejected, yeah. and now we see the poet rejected. And right after this, in line, at least in my book, uh, lines 144, 145, um, here's Brutus who is just not in his regular temperament. And Cassius says, of your philosophy, you make no use. Uh, yeah. If you give place to accidental evils. And he's talking about Brutus's typical stoicism. He's not living by those principles either. <clears throat> so they've rejected in rejecting the omens and the soothsayers, if you will, they've they've in a sense rejected the gods. Right. Right. They've rejected yeah. the poets. Yeah. They've rejected the philosophers. And now they will die. And rhetoric. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they've rejected rhetoric, totally or they, or they've misused it. Yeah, right. Yes, um, and now they will die because they've pay attention to somebody other than right. yourself, something other yeah. than pragmatic uh, right. persuasion. They've rejected every means of wisdom given yes. to man. Mm-hmm. Totally, and now they will mm-hmm. die for it. That's yep. Good. I mean, that's the end of Proverbs eight too. By the way, right when that's wisdom right. is speaking, calling out to man, and she says, "All who reject me love death." Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and now here we are. So anyway, that's yeah. just... That's a mic I think drop. that's great. That's a mic drop wisdom. Yeah, I'm that's not going to say anything else the rest of the podcast. <laughs> that's all I've got. Okay, one more <laughs> parallel to your chiasm, Heidi. Mm-hmm. Uh, line 183, Luci- enter Lucius with wine and tapers. Yeah. Speak no more of her. Give Speaking about Portia, then he says, give me a bowl of wine. In this I bury all unkindness. And then Cassia says to fill the wine so that it overswells the cup. I cannot drink too much of Brutus' love. And this is their last supper, I think. Yeah. You know, we have we have Caesar's last supper at the end of Act Two, where he invites all the conspirators to come have wine with him before they leave for the Senate. <coughs> and now yep. Brutus and Cassius are having their last supper. I think. I don't think they they have a, a wine again in Act Five, but perhaps. Yeah. Okay. Let me. So so uh, there's still much to say. I want to hear what you were going to what you want to say about Portia, but let me put tell you what my proof is that Brutus yeah. is. Can we call it a theory out. or do we need to call it a proof? Well, it, it's irrefutable, so yeah. <laughs> what is that? An irrefutable theory? An irrefutable theory. <laughs> um Okay, act 4, scene 3. 
everybody's gone. It's just Brutus and Lucius. Lucius is yeah. has fallen asleep playing his music. And Brutus finds, remember he Brutus says like, oh, here's that book I was looking for. Yes. It was in my pocket the whole time. That's which is kind of interesting, right? Like, yes. Like it, Lucius is like, yeah, I told you, you didn't give it to me. Yeah. He's um, been scolding Lucius. Yeah. And so you have, you have kind of this just really simple, um, what do you call that? What's the T.S. Eliot phrase here, term here? A, objective an objective relative. relative that Brutus has lost his mind. But now here, wow. here, that's not my proof though. Here's my proof. Line 315, he's picked up the book now and he's getting ready to read it. And he says, let me see, let me see. Is not the leaf turned down where I left reading? Here it is, I think. Brutus dog ears his books. Uh-huh. Obviously, he's the bad guy. <laughs> no, no godly human being would dog ear a book. Every close reader knows that. I really thought I believed you. I thought you were going to find the thing. This is the thing. That's not the thing. What's the thing? It's the objective correlative that he is pure evil. He dog ears <laughs> his books. I told Andrew this. I told Andrew this yesterday and Andrew said, I mean, Andrew basically conceded. Andrew's easily impressed. Basic, no, no, no. Andrew's not easily. <laughs> Andrew is okay, easily, easily impressed. impressed. That's how Matt and I got jobs at Cersei. <laughs> okay. That's, that's right. true. That's, that's, that's true. And yet, <laughs> and yet. I probably, maybe I shouldn't have said that. On a recording, <laughs> on the, that, that and we're amazing, right? Well, yes, you're really, really talented. Except he's for easily, he's Matt's easily impressed by the dumb most objective correlative to Brutus's. Evil. This is not a dumb <laughs> objective correlative. This is legit. Why? Okay, all right. I feel like we should create a poll. Well, I do. I have to say that is completely original. Like I've never read that in a Shakespeare commentary. <laughs> You're that's, obviously not reading the right ones. But I will write one for you. You need to write one. Yeah. That's one of the... Uh, that felt like a backhanded compliment, Heidi. <laughs> Matt, I am I am absolutely certain that no one has ever <laughs> thought ever. that ever before. Right. Uh, that could be... Um, but in fairness, if you want it to could be PhD. depending on what the book is. Right? That's true. We don't we don't know what the book is. <coughs> if it's what if it's Plutarch's Lives? Nope, too soon. Do they have books? Is that an anachronism? Real question. I have no idea. Did they have like bound books? How would you dog ear a scroll? Right. This is my question. Shakespeare's full of anachronisms. It's not a flaw. Um, but I'm, what, now I'm what? just actually curious. <laughs> it's not a flaw. It's because it's Shakespeare. So oh, right. there are no flaws. Well, how how else would you put a sacramental image into a pre-Christian play? You have to have anachronisms. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I like though. I like though because I. It's funny because I just saw. I just saw some people talking about this um, yesterday, complaining about what's that guy's name, Ken Follett. Yeah. That they they couldn't see they can't stand reading his books because they're full of anachronisms. Yeah. And 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 falsehoods about the right. historical time period he's writing about, and now here I'm here I am listening to you guys say. Well, Shakespeare's full of them too, except it's okay because it's, it's not, Shakespeare. It's fine when it's Shakespeare, but Ken Follett. So there's Shakespeare up here, and then there's Ken Follett with Pillars of the Earth. That's the Pillars of the Earth guy, right? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah, so that's it's not the same. So okay. apples and oranges. Now, I hate to rush us on from oh such a well-thought-out, brilliant insight. Thank you yeah. for calling it brilliant because and well You're thought welcome. out. Because you're I, welcome. Um, I feel like I feel like this is. I, I'm okay with being rushed on. But there's a ghost, Go for it, and we don't we don't have much time. And there's a ghost. Oh yeah, the ghost that's of important. Caesar comes. Yeah, we no, do need Not only does the ghost come, but he comes immediately after Brutus shows that he's a dog earer. What do you think provoked <laughs> okay. the ghost? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> a um, dog that, ear hashtag. <laughs> Okay. Actually, all, all I'm acknowledging, by the way, is that it is true that that happens after. True. Yeah. <laughs> it's a chronological. That is a chronological immediately after. Immediately yes. after. Immediately. Immediately. With a J. All <laughs> right. So tell us about the ghost, <laughs> Brian. Tell. What are your thoughts on the, the, the presence of the ghost huh. here? Hmm. Well, it's the ghost of Caesar. I know that. Uh, but how do we know it's that? It's not Banquo and it's not Hamlet's Stage father. Directions. It is indeed <coughs> Julius yeah. Caesar. But we only know that because of stage directions. And then I suppose if you were watching it on 
being performed, you would know because it's the same actor. It's the same guy with a flower on his face. Yeah. But the go when when he asks him who the ghost is, what does the ghost say? Hmm. Because Brutus says, "Who are you?" Right? Or he says, "What art thou?" What oh thou yeah, art? thy evil spirit. Brutus. And then the ghost says, "Thy evil spirit, Brutus." That is a really significant line, I think. Tell me more. Well, I think the um, the idea of Brutus becoming the thing that he has, or creating the thing that he has attempted to destroy, right? Yeah. He is now, now Caesar is the, um, is still in a sense more alive than any of the living characters here. Caesar is still the dominant personality in the play, the tragedy of Julius Caesar, right? So Caesar is haunting it literally as well as figuratively now. Mm. Um, And it is, um, uh, and so he's this mirror of the dark side, the shadow side of Brutus and that Brutus has created the thing he's most afraid of by murdering his friend and Rome itself. That's a good theory. It's not, I mean, it's not quite irrefutable, but that's a good theory for Bruce being a black guy. <laughs> are you still, are, are, let me guess, you think that it's his evil spirit because he has so demonstrated his evilness through dog earring his book? <laughs> exactly. I'm assuming you're talking I mean, to Matt here. Yes. <laughs> yes. Among, other, Sorry. among <laughs> other things, yes. He has uh, <laughs> demonstrated his. I mean, evil. that's point A, proof A. <laughs> right, but there well, are some Bs and Cs down there. <laughs> well, but there, there's only a couple of pages. This is a very brief encounter. It is between the ghost of Caesar and Brutus. Yeah, it's like ten lines, um, right? Yeah, it's not long. But but what was what stood out most to me is that after that we begin to see Brutus questioning everyone around him. Did you cry out? Did you cry yeah, out? What's that all sleep? about? Why is he so I, concerned I, with whether they saw the ghost? Well, or not? I, my, my take on it, what it seems to me is that this encounter with the ghost of Caesar shows Brutus, reveals to Brutus more fully what he's done. And it's driving him mad. Right. Yeah. Me, it reminded me so much of Macbeth. It is a lot so, like Wait, Macbeth. so you think, you're, I mean, are you, are you, are you saying that if... Lucius or Varro or Claudius had seen the ghost, mm-hmm. Brutus would be afraid that they would know that he's actually he was actually wrong. Or maybe no, the ghost isn't wrong. real, right? Because that's always right. the question oh, with Shakespeare's right. ghosts: is the that's ghost true. you know for sure that Hamlet's father's a real ghost because other people <coughs> see him? But yeah. Banquo is played yeah. differently in different performances, right. whether or not he's just in Macbeth's head. Right. And that's the same here with Caesar. So I think he's testing. Did you guys see the ghost? Or did you cry out in your sleep? Right. Right. I, I think Brutus is going mad yeah. at this point. I'm not I, saying that the, that he didn't see the ghost or the ghost wasn't there, but I think Brutus was the only one who saw it. And now he's either hearing screams in his own head yeah. or he's waking them up intentionally to find out if they saw what he saw. Right. You know, he's trying to find out if there are witnesses to this. Uh, he's trying to come to terms with what in the world is going yeah. on. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Because, yeah, that, I, that was my note. Why is he so worried about others seeing the ghost? But, <laughs> but you're so it's, I mean, yeah. it's, it's either or both. If they saw it, then they would know that he's being haunted by Caesar and perhaps he was wrong to do what he did. Right. But also, if they didn't see it, then he might be going yeah. mad and it's in his right. head. Huh. Right. That's good. E- like either that. way, it's it's not good. Not good. right. Well, in either way, the story works. Whether or not the ghost is just in Brutus's head, or whether or not the ghost is real, um, that's uh, it. It has a different level of pathos, but it still works either yeah. way, and can be played either way on stage. Is it weird to you guys at all that the only thing the ghost has to say is "I'm gonna see you in Philippi"? Yeah. Well, and then Coming what do we for your soul? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, but then what do we do with the fact oh that Brutus's response is to speed toward Philippi? Right. Yeah. It's a suicide mission. Right? It is. Yeah. And and so it, is, it makes me wonder. In paradise. Yeah. It, it, it makes me wonder it, if hell. Brutus is essentially being destroyed from the inside out. Right. He Does he realize that he's made a terrible mistake? And so Philippi is... It's... it's the end for him and he wants that 
or is you know is he becoming in a sense suicidal or uh, or right. is he just daring fate yet again uh, right yeah. yeah well it's a good question and it also goes along with uh, the with calpurnia's comment that the heavens only give omens for the deaths of princes right so this is a private omen um, mm. and whether it's in his head or whether it's a real, it's really Caesar coming for him or warning him or haunt, whatever his purposes are. It's a really ambiguous scene and really brilliant and can be played multiple ways. Um, and I think, but either way, as you pointed out, Brian, it's not good for Brutus. No, no matter how you alone. play this and stage it, like this is an omen of his death. Yeah. Um, was there, was there anything else that needed to be said about Portia or was you had mentioned the fire eating? Was that the main thing? Yeah. Well, and it's a confusing scene because he's told twice and some have speculated that this is a flaw in the play and something that Shakespeare intended to correct. Um, cause he tell he, he tells, um, Cassius that, 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 that Portia has died. And then about several lines later, a messenger comes and tells him that Portia has died and he reacts as if he didn't know yeah. to that messenger. And so some have speculated, maybe this is a flaw. Maybe this is something that Shakespeare intended to correct later. I think it is more insight into his character that he's being human with Cassius and then being a stoic and a Roman right. with this other messenger. That's and so how it's I more of the dichotomy between the private and the public again, which happened again chiastically yeah. in Acts two. 2, scene 3 and 2, 2 and 3. Oh, I like that because it makes my argument about Caesar better for Act more compelling life. yeah 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 more convincing <laughs> your it, arguments it, are always compelling it's the dog earring that's especially the, the dog earring that you said you cut out a little bit that's so what you especially the dog earring um <laughs> you just wanted her to repeat it just in case right <laughs> yeah the uh yeah i read it the way you're saying this the, the latter way because he says to cassius like he's obviously willing to be personable Mm-hmm. with Cassius but then he says speak no more of it especially when other people are around mm-hmm. Cassius brings it up again and he's like no don't speak of us don't speak of her and then then the you know the messenger comes along and he's like you know what news yes what news and he's, yeah, and he's much more stoic about it yeah and he handles it like oh we all have to die so yeah huh. okay that's cool um the uh that's 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 our time. We have to. That's start. all we have. We have yeah. There's nothing more to say about Act Four. It's full of nothing but just gibberish. <laughs> um, we've covered everything important. Um, no, that's our time. We'll we'll come back for, obviously for Act Five and then a Q and A. In fact, we'll need to get David to request questions for the Q and A. But do you have anything you need to say in closing, Brian? Any wrap up? Final thoughts? Um, no, I'm I'm still rendered speechless by your theory. Thank you. The dog ear. Thank you. Dog earring Very theory. compelling. Yeah. Irrefutable. Um, <laughs> those, those are adjectives. Yes. Those are adjectives in the dictionary that describe something. Uh-huh. I have nothing more to say. Also speechless because of my <laughs> argument. Thank you. Um, I'm so glad we saved this for the end. The, the only thing I want to say is just to reiterate something that you guys have both said that Hopefully, hopefully we can see that the overall message seems to be when you, when you think of it, when you think of act three as kind of the end seems to be like, oh, is it, it's just about, you know, whether Brutus should kill, should kill Caesar. And it, and it'd be very easy to stop there and mm-hmm. conclude that Brutus was right. Hmm. But then as when we get into act four, we, we start seeing a, a, a more complex and fuller and comprehensive question about not, I mean, it's still about killing Caesar, but, but bigger than, than all of that. And, and, you know, the nature of order and chaos, um, corruption, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely right type thing, you know, and, and seeing how this has affected both men, right. Mark Antony and Brutus and Cassius. And I don't know about for you, but by the end of act four, Cassius feels less slippery to me, less snaky right. than he did in 
to earlier. Like because he said I, something real, right? Yeah, I want to sympathize with Cassius in a way that I did not want to sympathize with him at all. And before before Caesar's assassination. yeah, there's a there's a complete reversal between Cassius and Antony. Yes, right? you, Brian, that's great. Yes, you feel great compassion toward Antony at after the death of Caesar. Yeah. Um, and intense dislike for Cassius or suspicion at least. And then those are reversed in yeah. act four. My favorite stories are stories where the author gives you somebody that you absolutely cannot sympathize with and one that you absolutely do. And then shows you how, how, how we might've, we might've jumped to a false conclusion. Mm-hmm. In the mm-hmm. beginning. And I think that happened like in um, going back to Homer and the Iliad, I think that happens with Hector and Achilles, right? We, we have, yes, beginning opinions of them that, yeah. that alter for us as we go through the rest of the book if we're Absolutely. paying attention if we're reading right. it right. well right. So. okay sorry um, that's it then thank you for this wonderful conversation you guys are awesome I mean this you guys are brilliant I this like this fun. I mean neither of you I had interviews that was as good as my irrefutable proof but, but well, that's a tall order the stuff you did say <laughs> was pretty good I mean Thanks. In its place. Yeah. In right. its like, Properly like, ordered. What I said was Shakespeare level stuff. What you guys right. said was Ken Follett level stuff. They're right. like Ken Follett. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, ju- we're just filler. I mean, somebody's got to fill in the rest of the. Full Ken Follett can be an enjoyable read. So that's, you guys were enjoyable. Okay. That's Thank what you. we conclude from Act Four. <laughs> this has been awesome. I can't wait for next week. Act Five. I know. Me too. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.